is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. WTF Bach here, Bach here, to give you what you need, which I believe is more Bach. The last two episodes, we had a look at the first four cantatas of Bach's 1724 cantata cycle, otherwise known as his second cycle, otherwise known as his first chorale cantata cycle. These are cantatas whose music is often based on the chorale melodies that came from the Lutheran hymnals. We saw that Bach worked systematically. In the first cantata of the cycle, he put the melody as a slow-moving cantus firmus in the soprano, and over the course of a month, he moved the slow-moving melody down until, in his first four cantatas, we saw a unique hymn melody appearing in every different voice part, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And now it's week five. We get to witness now an aesthetic decision of Bach. Does he start again with the melody in the soprano? Does he go back up through the tenor? What will he do? A decision we ourselves might even conceivably make. Whereas we cannot imagine penning one bar of these cantatas, we can imagine this decision. Okay, I've had the melody in every single voice part. Now it's week five. Where does the melody appear? He does bring the melody back into the soprano, but then halfway through the same movement, he shifts the melody into the alto. So we could see this structure, maybe. We see week one through four, each of the four voice types gets the melody. Then week five, the soprano and alto share the melody. Then you think, okay, well, week six, now the tenor and bass are gonna share, but no, something else happens, which we will briefly explore. So first, let's get to this fifth week of this chorale cantata cycle, this 1724 cantata cycle. This is BWV 10, Meine Seele erhebt den Herren. Join Evan's Substack. Join the Substack. Join Evan's Substack. The only place for you to find all things in the mind of Evan Schenner. WTFBach.substack.com. The only place for you to find all the things in the mind of Evan Schenner. In the Substack. Go to the Substack. That text translates something like, My soul magnifies the Lord. And you may recognize this as the text of the Magnificat. And indeed, if you did, you'd be right. The day which first heard this glorious music was nearly 300 years ago, July 2nd, 1724. And that is the Feast of the Visitation. Mary, mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, visiting her relative Elizabeth, also pregnant with John the Baptist. Now, the visitation story comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, so off we go again. This is, I believe, the New International Version translation. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried down to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And then Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, 
for the Mighty One has done great things for me in his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with the good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and returned home. So those are the verses from the Gospel of Luke, verses 39 through 56. That's the very first chapter of the Gospel. So we see a lot of things we, we recognize from Christianity, from, from Bach even. We've got, first of all, I believe the origins of the Hail Mary prayer. Uh, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. And then, of course, Mary's song where she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. That text often gets translated as my soul doth magnify the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. It's the same chapter in the Gospel of Luke. We know it as the Magnificat. And Martin Luther, too, he translated from the Latin into this German that is the title of this cantata, BWV 10. He composes a melody for this very special prayer, obviously. So when, when Mary says this thing, you know, her relative Elizabeth says, blessed are you amongst women. And she doesn't say, well, thanks very much. She says, no, no, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. He is blessed. Very uh, be- beautiful poetry. And Luther sets this in a, in a specifically exceptional psalm tone from Gregorian chant. It's called the, the ninth tone uh, or the, the wandering tone, the tonus peregrinus. And uh, what this wandering tone means is that there is a reciting tone. There is a tone, one note that you recite a lot of this text on. And because this is the wandering tone, the wandering tone sort of, well, it wanders, right? So, so the beginning of this, as set by Luther, is this. Meine Seele erhebten Herren. Right? My soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord. And we saw that a lot of the words get repeated on this this A here, right? But then the second line, und mein Geist freut sich Gottes meines Heilandes. So we had a lot of the text getting repeated on this G. So this is this is interesting. First, the melody goes, you know, singing a lot of this text on the one note. Second phrase, doing a lot of this text reciting on the on a on a different note. That's why it's called the the wandering tone. There's people who have written books on the wandering tone. For example, Dr. Matthias Lundberg has a book over 300 pages long called something like um, The Use of the Wandering Tone in Contrapuntal Music. I'll put a link to that in the description if you really want to get into the church tones and things like that. It's clearly a fascinating subject. Otherwise, why write a 300-something page book on it? In any case, the Magnificat prayer, that little song that Mary says... That is important to Luther based on his unique treatment of it with the wandering tone and for Bach because Bach, just the year before 1724, has set the entire prayer in Latin to music, the Magnificat. So let's go to now July 2nd, 1724. What's on your mind in Leipzig? It's Bach's second visitation feast and the year before he's debuted, like I said, that early version of the Magnificat. So Bach has used the Vulgate, that's the Latin translation of the Greek Bible. That's where we get the text, Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum. And in the Latin Magnificat, Bach has done some exceptional word painting, even to the point of when Mary says in the prayer, all generations will call me blessed. That's omnes 
Generationem, Generationem. And Bach has set this incredible work for full choir, full orchestra, and every single voice part is singing out just these two words, omnes generationem, every, every half second for hundreds of seconds. So you quite literally hear the wash of sound over your ears for every generation, one generation after the other, after another, after another, oh, every generation, every generation, every generation. So that's there an excerpt from the Magnificat, the year before the cantata that we're discussing today. And perhaps that's the most extreme use of word painting. This might be on the parishioner's mind. Perhaps just last year he exhausted the use of word painting. What's he going to do this year for the visitation? Well, for one, he's got the language of the people now. German. He doesn't set about doing extreme word painting to this prayer. Instead, he's got what I think is probably the most exceptional image from that passage in the Bible, and that's John the Baptist leaping in the womb. So Bach starts nearly every single movement with the leaping figure of the fourth. Right, so here's the first movement, and here's the next movement. There it was, maybe not at the very beginning, but certainly in the opening material. Here's the next movement. Clearly a bit uh, more sad, but still, the leap of the fourth. Here's yet another movement. Well, that sounds very in- jumpy indeed. I mean, goodness, all this music, I'm just skipping over what a sin. But you heard that in the bassoon, bum, 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 the, the leap of the fourth there. Here's yet another movement. So Bach has taken this image of John the Baptist, and he's used that as a theme or a motive, or something connecting these movements of the cantata. So let's get back to the first movement, where the opening motive in the first violins and first oboes is... Bum, and you hear all this leaping, uh, you hear even jumps of octave, so big leaping, and it will be right before Mary begins her prayer, which is fascinating because that's exactly how it happens in the Gospel of Luke. You have John in Elizabeth's womb, leap. Bing for joy, and then Mary's prayer. So this is really like direct musical painting of what happens there in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke.
That's the first phrase there. So you could hear amid all this leaping and all this jumping in the womb, you could hear Mary's prayer very dignified. Or I guess we're in different And now I'll play the second phrase. And keep in mind this sort of figure that happened in the orchestra. I mean, that, if that's nothing else, that's leaping. Marvelous phrase there, longer than the first phrase, slightly different. And now at this point in the Lutheran melody, we would repeat, right? We would repeat the first part of the melody with different text. We would say, Repeat it, right? But Bach thinks here, you know, this is the wandering melody. This is the wandering tone. I wonder if this melody could wander from the sopranos down into the altos and he changes the key da -de -da 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 -da. play out there, but you indeed saw the altos singing the church melody in the second half as opposed to the sopranos in the first. And I don't know if you could hear the Baroque trumpet, the, the tromba, doubling the melody there throughout the movement. That's a trick that is typical in these chorale cantatas. It gives the listener something to latch onto, which indeed is the melody. Let's just do a little... 
you could sort of hear it very clearly on that last note in the altos. That's the Netherlands Bach Ensemble performing brilliantly as usual. I'll put a link to that entire cantata in the episode description. It's a video. You can watch it. And speaking of links, a gracious listener of the show, fan of the show, made a Spotify playlist of all the cantatas in the 1724 cycle. 362 songs when I last checked. Over 17 hours of cantatas. That's very nice of you to do that. Thank you very much. Shout out to Anthony Cappello for doing that. I will put a link also in the description to his playlist. And maybe starting, therefore, in June of this year, you can go through it week by week, listening along and recreating some rich history three centuries later. Won't that be fun? Now, I know I'm not saying much about these cantatas. I'm really just grazing the surface, but I think a superficial coverage is necessary, as with anything so profound, so abundant in these hidden treasures. But just as a quick aside, before we go into the sixth cantata of the cycle, before we jump into the next week, which we will also only do very briefly, I should mention that Bach, toward the end of his life, when he was arranging for a publication a set of six chorale preludes for organ that is now known as the Schubler chorales, after the name of the publisher, Bach went back into his cantatas and he sort of picked from his his favorite pieces from the cantatas and he set them uh, for the organ. Now, Bach happened to go back into this very cantata, BWV 10, and Bach was struck by a duet between the tenor and the alto, He snatches it and he reorchestrates it for organ and he publishes it as one of the six Schubler chorales. Now we're going to listen to both versions. In the first version, which is for, for like I said, the singers and the full orchestra, you know, straight out of the cantata, you would have heard it in the in the church. You'll notice that it's a canon between tenor and alto uh, that begins imitating the bass line initially, and then on the top is a wind instrument beautifully singing out the same Luther chorale melody that we heard in the first movement.
Instruments, Ton Koopman with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and Choir. Over 20 years now, that performance from 2003. That's him there on the continuo part. You can hear him doing very clever things in the figured bass there, along with the plucked lute player also embellishing very freely in the figured bass. Now, we'll go to the Schubler Chorale version. Same music, but now for one performer. You'll notice that the pedals start. Very difficult, very tricky pedal line to play. And then the left hand alone will play both tenor and alto parts, so both singer parts, and then the right hand on a, yet another keyboard. So now three keyboards, the pedal keyboard, left hand keyboard, right hand keyboard. The right hand will sing the original Luther chorale melody. Here is a lovely young organist named Zitz de Vries. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Zitz, S-E-I-T-Z-E, de Vries on the organ. So there you have it, Seats to Freeze. That comes from the Schubler Chorales, a publication made at the end of Bach's life. And you hear that the performer there decided to play the four-part harmonization of the chorale melody after the composition itself. It certainly helps reinforce where the original material came from. Now, brew yourself up a fresh cup of, I don't know, Longqin green tea from China or something like that. We're at the halfway point of the episode. I'm not going to really get into the 
following week all that deeply. Luckily for us, I've actually already covered this chorale melody. In fact, this was one of the first chorale melodies I discussed back in the first episode dealing with chorale melodies in general. Now, this melody for the sixth, now the sixth cantata in this cantata cycle of 1724, BWV 93, this is the melody, again, penned by Herr Georg Neumark in 1657. Uh, I... I even played, I think, the clavichord version that comes to us from the Wilhelm Friedmann and Anna Magdalena Bach books of this very beloved chorale melody, evidently. Wenn nur den lieben Gott lässt walten. So here is the text of the first movement. Wenn nur den lieben Gott lässt walten. Whoever lets God, whoever lets only, excuse me, whoever lets only the dear God reign und hoffet auf in alle Zeit and hopes in him at all times. Den wird er wunderlich erhalten. Then he will preserve us in a marvelous way, in allem Kreuz und Traurigkeit, in every cross and in every sadness, where Gott dem Allerhöchsten traut, whomever trusts in the Almighty God, der hat auf keinen Sand gebaut. Uh, he has not built upon the sand. So it's, you've built upon something firm if you've put your trust in the Allerhöchsten God. How is Bach going to set the melody here? Where is he going to put the cantus firmus? Well, now, after five weeks of doing something more or less between one voice or two voices, hogging the melody, he blows it completely apart. He absolutely blows it. He says, you know, what's that meme? Yo, dog, I hear how you like your car, so I put a car inside your car. This is like Bach saying, yo, dog, I hear you like your chorale melody, so I put a chorale inside a chorale. So this is really, he's got... Um, Two voices leading each other in canon. They're not singing the chorale melody. This comes from maybe the themes from the oboes. They lead each other in canon at the beginning. And then a snippet, just a snippet of the four-part chorale. So it's like really he's completely blown the ideas apart. He comes to the idea. He uses it as a crutch for five weeks. But then he turns his crutch into a, I don't know, some sort of a superhuman appendage. I'm going to play the first movement and speak over it just to guide you through it. Then I'll play a different version without me speaking. And what did Bach do in the seventh week? Aren't you curious? How, how am I going to continue this brief, brief, brief analysis of this cycle? Well, in the seventh week, there is no documented cantata. And I think that's our sign. We shall be content to look only very briefly at the first six cantatas and then go in a different direction on this podcast. So here is Philip Herwege, and I hope you don't mind my speaking over it. both sort of in imitation of each other. Here comes the first phrase, sopranos followed by altos. First phase, four-part chorale. Here we go. And now, second phase, altos lead, followed by the sopranos. Altos. Sopranos. Thank you. 
four-part chorale, and go. We're starting over at the beginning, sort of. We're now a third of the way through the piece. The next phrase, the tenors will start, the basses will follow. Tenors, basses. Four-part chorale. Who's the only person who hasn't led yet? The basses. Go. Followed by tenors. Four-part chorale now. It's almost like we're starting over here. Oboe's an imitation. Violin's an imitation. Continual lower strings in imitation. We're in a new key, a new part of the church melody. But now instead of only two voices, all four voices will be in imitation. Altos, tenors, basses, soprano. Four-part chorale. That was the, the all-high God, probably the highest phrase. And now we have sort of the inversion. Tenors. Altos, sopranos, and basses. Building on sand. Can you hear the ground slipping away from you?
my God, that is beautiful music. I'm going to just play that all highest God phrase because I felt that that was absolutely stunningly beautiful. Let's listen to it again and I won't interrupt it with my speech. gives me goosebumps. Absolutely sublime music. Now I'm going to play one more version of this by Rudi Lutz and the J.S. Bach Foundation and I'm going to WTF it just a little bit. Can't help myself. Now if you're wondering why my voice sounds different between different parts of this episode, I have recorded it as I often do over several days but for some reason my voice is my many voices don't seem to be linking up in this episode. Hope it doesn't bother you as much as it's bothering me. I do feel terrible only excerpting these these little parts of this cantatas because, you know, my, my goodness, such music and such depth you can go in studying this music. But I am only supposed to be your guide. I am just taking you into the world, and then I hope you can go somewhere on your own terms, on your own time. And, and then, of course, tell me what you bring back from your journey. Thank you. 
I love that movement. What I also like about that is that now in week six, Bach says enough with this organization, enough with taking the cantus from us systematically through different parts of the voice. I no longer need this idea. It reminds me of that um, article on Bach that I read from the Encyclopedia Britannica by, by Tuffy, where he says, he does not invent new forms, but every single form he touches, it is not left the same. And this reminds me of, of this cantata, you know, he started sort of with something that was more or less predictable going through each voice part, but now, now where's the distinction between cantus firmus and four-part chorale? That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. And I'm going to quickly announce here my new box store opening up in less than a month, March 14th through the end of March in Erfurt, Germany. If you've never been to one of my box stores before, that is a shame because it's like the coolest place on earth. It's a pop-up store somewhere in whatever city, this case it happens to be in Erfurt, Germany, where every day I go inside and I play Bach for over five hours a day for free. You come, you buy t-shirts, lighters, stress balls, whatever floats your boat, you support Bach, you hear me talk about the music, you come in feeling okay, you leave feeling great, you leave feeling Bachified. So I'm going to really harp on that announcement at the beginning of the next episode, March 14th through the end of March in Airfort, Germany. Also, if you've not subscribed to my YouTube channel, did you know I have a YouTube channel? I'm going to renew its presence on the interwebs. It will be youtube.com slash at WTF Bach, and I'm going to start posting videos so you can actually see me playing through things. I know a lot of you have requested, I can hear you, but I can't see you. Well, not on this podcast you'll be able to see me, but on that YouTube channel you'll be able to see my fingers and even my face. Is that what you want? I'm not sure that's what I want, but that's, that seems to be the formula. Everyone wants to see a face. Now you're going to see mine. Thanks for listening. The, 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 the WTF Bach Podcast is here. We'd be remiss if we didn't thank you for listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. Donate button. Support on PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. You can find all relevant links in the episode description. You'd be a fool not to find this beautiful. Cool.